we all minister no matter where we're at. In fact, did you know that the, the word for minister in the Bible simply means to serve? To serve. So you know what that means? That means that every one of you are a minister. Turn to the person next to you and say, you are a minister. And then say, I prefer to be called bishop or reverend. No, no. I, I want to share with you this morning a story or maybe a season of life that Janet and I have, have gone through. And while this is not about me, but I hope that you gain some instruction from me sharing this with you in terms of us just continuing to become a, a healthy church. This week, Janet and I were talking uh, about the differences in our life now in ministry compared to when we first uh, started. And she pointed out that, you know, now we have increased staff and that the, the range of responsibilities then was actually much greater in the sense that, you know, you just pretty much had to do everything, it seemed like, all right, when the church was smaller and you just don't have as many people that, that you can lean on. And I, I remember when we met at Cox North Hospital, for those of you that don't know, we went to Cox North every Sunday to have services. We'd have to set up every Sunday. So, and some of you would even help with, with that. But we would go, and uh, I would uh, take a couple of my kids with me. We'd always stop at Kinko's before and help with the, the bulletins. And get, remember the green sheets that you would write, write in the uh, uh, sermon notes? And we would get those, and we'd fold them. Actually, the kids would would get to church then, or Cox North, set up the chairs, set up the sound system. You know, I had to do that every Sunday morning and then tear down. Many of you might remember that. There's a lot of work. Besides that, you know, you have all the appointments and meetings and then the other pastorly things, you know, weddings, funerals, hospital visits, counseling. Staffing was limited. And again, the, the pastor of a small church is kind of like a Swiss army knife. You know, you'd think that the larger the church gets, the harder the job. I think it's the opposite. The pastors of small churches do it all. And, and actually, about 80% of the churches in America are under 100. And that's the toughest gig, all right, because you just don't have a staff. You know, I can, I can call up my assistant and say, hey, I need you to call so-and-so or you know, or a couple other staff members, I need you to do this, or I need you to help with this. And when you're the only guy, you got to just make sure it gets done, right? So as the church was, was young, that's just how you had to do it. Now, the problem with that is that a pastor can think, as, the, as a church grows, that he's indispensable, that he can do it all. And that's a, a deception that can easily sink in. And nothing is more exhausting than thinking that you can do it all. That is hazardous to your health and to the church. The fact is stress is increased. This is not just true for ministry. It's true for all of us. With any job, life in general, thinking that you can do it all. And then sometimes it just feels like you have no choice. It's like single moms, I'm like, or you know, any single parent, you don't have another partner to lean on as much, and your responsibilities increase. Stress is increased when you feel like you have to do it all. 
I mean, there are physical, emotional, even spiritual manifestations when you reach your limit. And, and I look at my own life, and maybe you can relate, there's kind of this extra nervousness, you know, and different physical manifestations of that, irritability, defensiveness, weight gain or great weight loss, blood pressure increasing. Your alone moments are not so alone because you're there with your thoughts and you're always thinking about what has to be done. And it seems like you can't rest. Anybody relate to that? Again, you don't have to be in ministry with this. This is just, it seems, life. And you're not able to enjoy your relationships as much because there's just so much busyness going on. Or, in my case, too, you have intervention. I mean, I've had my kids gather around me and say, basically, hey, Dad, uh, you need to cool your jets because you're not here enough. And you're being a real toad when you are here. So things have to change. My hope in sharing this is just to realize we all get to a limit. Are we recognizing the markers? Because we're the ones responsible to make the change when when that happens in our life. Now, my path might be different than yours, but the point is we have to be honest with ourselves about those boundaries. Now, two things happened in the church, and Janet's the one that, that pointed this out, so I can thank her for this. Two things happened that really made a difference for us, and that was life groups and the extra staff. Life groups. A life group, if you're not familiar with it, is where you know, 10 to 15 people gather together on a regular basis, and they, they do life together. There's close-knit relationships where support and biblical wisdom are found, and they really replace much of the need where in the past, we might think pastors would do this, but life groups are now doing this. It, instead of calling a centralized office and and pastor trying to, you know, maybe find some counseling or get a visit or have meals or take care of a wedding shower or baby shower. Life groups do that. Now, just ask yourself, who can do a better job of all of those things, one guy for four or 500 people or a couple with 10 or 15 people? That's not a hard question to answer. Now, I'm not suggesting that the reason we hire staff or have life groups is to make my job easier. I'm just suggesting that the the church greatly benefits when those things are done well. And by the way, just having them doesn't mean they're done well, right? Just having life groups and staff doesn't mean everything runs smoothly because that takes, you know, some effort. And uh, there are times where we've been you know, not such a good season and times where, you know, it's, uh, it seems like things are running smoothly and thankfully we're, I think, enjoying times like that now. You know, the, the Bible actually addresses these kind of matters about just being overburdened. There's a story of a well-known leader who was stressed out, overworked, and he was facing responsibilities far beyond his capacity. His father-in-law comes along, sees the predicament, and gives his son-in-law some sage advice. So first of all, in-laws can be good, okay? So I just want to throw that out there, all right? And of course, that man was Moses. 
And Moses led, the Bible says there were 600,000 men who left Egypt when they were in bondage. That means if you count the wives and children, that's well over a million. These people had constant requests of their leader, Moses. Now, can you imagine a million people going to one guy? That would be a tad stressful. And any leader understands this. All right, if you're a CEO, business owner, business manager, any person in, in, in uh, leading in government, mayor, governor, whatever, when you're leading like that, you get up in the morning and you're thinking of all the tasks you have to accomplish. Soon you realize that the number of tasks outpace your ability or the time that you have. Listen to the exchange between Moses and his father-in-law. It says this in Exodus 18. And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God when they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. And by the way, I'll just add this that when you do the work for God, when you're in ministry, it sounds so sanctimonious to run yourself to the bone and not attend to these things. But that's just arrogance. Trust me, I'm familiar with that, okay? Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out. For the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. One of the biggest factors that inhibit the health of any organization are the leaders who refuse to face reality. But when leaders do that, they give a fighting chance for an organization to be healthy. And in the case of Moses, he had to realize, I simply cannot do it all. And that's hard for some leaders to admit. I mean, we have limits. And the problem is compounded when a leader is prone to be a people pleaser and he wants to meet the expectations of everybody. Now notice, trying to meet every need yourself, Jethro, that was the father-in-law, said it's not good. It's not, because, not good because it is too heavy for you. I mean, what happens when you try to lift something that is too heavy? You set yourself up to get hurt, right? Whether it's emotional or physical or even spiritual, the hurt, I think, can come in a variety of ways. And Jethro says, not only do you get hurt, but others around you are also impacted. I mean, listen, when a hard-driving leader expects others to have the, the same level of commitment to make the same sacrifices that he is making, when those sacrifices mean, you know, leaving your family in the dust and you're expecting everybody else to work like that too, that is injurious to others around you. That causes damage to others. Notice the last words of verse 18. You are not able 
to do it alone. I mean, by trying to do it alone, you will not only cause frustration, but you will exacerbate or make worse those unmet needs. And Moses finally gets to a point that he admits that he needs help. And so if you read the rest of that passage, they basically devise a system of delegation, breaking it down into smaller numbers and putting a person over these groups of people. And they they get capable people, gifted people that are able to help. So I suppose the first lesson from Moses is about humility, recognizing our limits. And when leading, placing others in areas of giftedness and doing that well, that can lead to a strong and vigorous organization, or in this case, a whole host of Israelites. So say to the person next to you, I cannot do it all. Yeah, now say it again so that you mean it, all right? (laughs) What happens to an organization when those in it realize their limits and they look to God for their energy and they actually consider the word of God for the plan to operate in the kingdom of God? Jesus actually has some things to say about this in Luke 19. There's a story there. You might remember this parable about 10 minas given to people, given to 10 servants. A mina was about three months' wage. We can think of a mina not just in terms of money, but we could think of it in terms of gifts. We could think of it in terms of, of time that's given to, to people, opportunities, all right? Jesus gave this parable, though, at a time in which the people around him in in Jerusalem and Judea were ruled by the son of Herod the Great, and he was quite a pill. He had actually, his name was Archelaus, but he actually had killed about 3,000 Jews in a little uprising, so the Jews hated the guy. And so Archelaus was managing this area, but he was not yet given the official title, and I suppose that was almost like a, a political move by Herod the Great so that you know, he wouldn't rile them up, but they still knew who was leading. So they hated Herod the Great's son. They resented his leadership. And with that in mind, let's look at, at Luke 19, verses 11 through 26, and this is what it says. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the, the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Now, remember, when the Jews were looking for a kingdom, they were looking to get out from under the boot of Rome. Okay, so they were looking for a, a physical, militaristic kingdom that would deliver them. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. So again, as he's saying this, boy, they're just like, yeah, well, we know a guy like that, okay? Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to rule over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know that they had gained, uh, what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to them, well done, good and faithful service. So they invested uh, somehow or did business, and they made some money for him, all right? Because you've been faithful in a little, 
you now have authority over 10 cities. So they're rewarded in proportion to their faithfulness. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And said to them, and you are to be over five cities. And then came another saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you were a severe man. And, and indeed he was. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put away money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the miner from him and give it to the one who has the 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Hmm. The nobleman, of course, in, in close range, that was, that was Herod's son. But Jesus is doing this comparison, and hopefully they can see that the kingdom of God has some similar things going on. In other words, even though there was a, an, an unfaithful and a wicked king, the servants were still responsible to serve the king, but the king rewarded them. How much more would a good king, King Jesus, reward the faithful servants who served him? Our gifts, our money, our time are to be used for the pleasure of the sovereign. Now, Jesus also adds some detail here that I think is important that the general populace hated the ruler. They hated Archelaus. Not only was this true of Herod's son, Archelaus, it was also true of Jesus. People hated Jesus. I mean, Jesus was near Jerusalem, and in a few days, he would hear a mob shout out, we have no king but Caesar. <laughs> you might remember also hailing him as he's riding on a donkey, and then they turn right around and say, we want to crucify him. The crowd is fickle. And John, or Jesus told his disciples in John 15, 25, they hated me without a cause. So there are people who hate the king, and there are people who love the king. The king will take care of the people who hate him. He'll take care of that in eternity. He'll take care of that here. And he will reward those who love him. But let me ask you this. How do you know whether people love the king or not? How do you know that? You know it by them serving the king and using their gifts and what has been given them for the sake of the kingdom. I mean, I believe there is a real kingdom and a real king, his name is Jesus, and we will be rewarded and even giving, given reigning privileges and how, what that looks like in the future, I don't know for sure, but I'm just going to take Jesus at his word that we will be given positions of, of rulership in a future world. It's an amazing thing to think about. All of this just because God is good. All of this is because God is willing to share this with his children, particularly those who are faithful. And it's not that he's after compliance and forcing people he is rewarding loving, sincere worship that expresses itself in serving him and his kingdom. 
Now, why would the servant in our story just hold on to the mina? There's a variety of reasons, I suppose. Maybe he felt more confident just holding it to himself, right? Maybe he had a sense of security by just having it in his hands. Wall Street Journal did a survey of the country's top executives, and one question is, what is your greatest fear? The reply was interesting. Basically, for the majority of them, it was along this line. I fear I will not have enough in time of trouble. These are some of the most successful men and women in the U.S. They have loads of cash, okay? But it was not enough to give them a sense of security. And listen, if you are on that hamster wheel, just working hard, trying to save up enough, trying to just get up so you can have a, a sense of security, let me clue you in on something. Security is not found in the size of your bank account. I'm not saying it's wrong to save. It's a good thing. But if you're looking to fill your heart with a sense of security, that's not it. And when we adopt the attitude of worrying about not giving, not using those resources, or not using our gifts, we belie our position as servants of the king. In other words, this is opposed to following Christ. Christ said in Matthew 13, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. I'll never forget when I was trying to finish up my degree at a Bible college. I think I've shared with you this story before. And I was working for a company that wanted to give me a promotion. And so that meant I had to quit school. And I went into the, I knew the president of the college. I went into his office. I said, hey, Bill, I think I'm going to quit. And I remember him saying, Kevin, don't do this. Don't do this. Because when you start making money and the kind of money that was promised to me, he goes, you will never go back into ministry. And there's something to that, that it, 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 can, it can choke the word out. In other words, I don't have time for that. I'm too busy with this over here. And it's, a, it's not an easy thing for men and women in the business world to have that balance. And many of you are doing that well, and, and I commend you. I mean, I was in my mid-20s, and I was just an arrogant toad, and I thought I could do it all. And... I soon learned I couldn't. The king says to his servants, here's some resources. Do a business, do something until I come. Make some profit. Use it for my sake. Use it for my purposes. Use it for my good. Each person, listen, is given a set of resources. Could be a, you know, opportunities, time, could be gifts, could be, you know, money. Each person is given something to use for the kingdom of God. And listen, what this passage says is, God will reward you greatly, and I think there's, there's equal opportunity for us in this sense, that it doesn't matter if you just have a GED and you're not a great public speaker. I believe that God will reward you just as greatly if you are faithful as if you had your PhD in public communication were speaking around the world. 
It's about being faithful with the opportunities, the gifts, the money, whatever it is that God gives you. The issue is using what you are given. It's interesting that the word for business in verse 13 is the same word from which we get our word pragmatic. In other words, do something pragmatic with this, meaning that our service to the kingdom is to be useful. It's to be practical. It's to be fleshed out in in real life. Remember the story of Moses? The work of the kingdom is not done by just one. And let me tell you something, it's not done by just the church staff. We are all ministers. The work of the kingdom is a job for everyone who's a follower of Christ. We are all ministers. 1 Peter 4.10 says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. We're stewards of every gift an opportunity that God gives us. Now, like Moses, we can't meet every need, right? We can't do it all. We have to use wisdom, and we have to to know our limits. Using our gifts, though, is a way to take our mina and use it to please the king. What a delight to witness that in this body. What a delight to see David and Melissa doing what they're doing. What a delight to see those of you in business taking what you've been given and leveraging that for the kingdom of God. What a delight it is to hear of several of you going and serving with the Jobs for Life in Center City, Springfield, and helping those who don't have employment and just coming alongside and being a mentor for them. God bless you for that. That is awesome. And... I know this goes on all the time with many of you, serving. For others, though, opportunities that come up when there's, or needs that are given, it creates tension. It brings up bad memories. It actually brings up fear, and it stresses people out to hear it because maybe your experience was very negative in a church. Anybody here had negative experiences with a church? Yeah. Those of you that don't have your hand up, you are lying to me. I know you all did, all right? You know it happens, right? You know, you, you worked your rear end off with something and nobody noticed, or somebody said something stupid to you, or maybe you were criticized. There was a whole host of things that take place that create hurts. Here's a hard truth from Luke 19. Regardless of what your circumstances are or how you feel, you are still responsible for using your gift. You say, but wait a minute. You don't know about the leader. You don't know about the church. It's not that we should deny the hurt in our past experiences. I think that, you know, we deal with that. We try to get our heart in a good position, but it doesn't get us off the hook from serving, from giving, from doing whatever we can to work in the kingdom of God. And if this is not enough motivation, hearing about the king who who is pleased with his servants, who rewards his servants, nothing I can say can help you. 
Because if you don't care enough to know about pleasing the king is what life is all about, that there is great benefit to serving the king. But the bottom line is, it's not about our past experiences. It's not about our hurts. Because we're still responsible. I'm still responsible to lead. Even though I could tell you story after story of things that have happened, and you'd say, man, you know, why would you still do this? Because in the scheme of things, what my king wants and what he's called Janet and I to do is what it's all about. And all the other stuff that takes place, which, by the way, is maybe 5%, the other 95% has been great blessing, that 5% just pales in comparison. I mean, that's the reality of it. I'm still responsible to do what God has called me to do. You are still responsible to serve, to give, to love. I'm still responsible to my wife to love her, even though I may feel like something's unfair. And she with me. We're still responsible. Nothing gets me off the hook to be a spiritual leader. You know, I'm just not into that thing. I don't know the Bible. Yeah, I had that shoved down my throat when I was a kid. So what? Guess what? You're given the job. So you either suck at your job or you can do your job. And by the way, when we have our regular jobs at our vocation, some of the worst testimonies we have are Christians in the workplace who are complaining who come in late all the time and think there's no relationship of their faith to how they do their job. You are besmirching the name of Christ if that describes you. So you need to confess your sin and repent and start coming to work on time, working hard, and quit your complaining. And how about for the church then? When we apply that to the church, we are responsible. We are, we are to be stewards of our gifts. And listen, that stewardship does not cease because I got hurt in the past or because some, some circumstance. And I know it's difficult. Trust me, I know, all right? I'm not making light of that. But you do your best to work out those relationships. There are tough people to, to work with and you know, they just kind of, eh, you know, like fingernails on a chalkboard sometimes. But you know what? Who said this was going to be easy? Who said there's not, you know, going to be trials? And what I have found is that anything that is worth it is going to take hard work, especially if it's, if it's very meaningful. But here's the thing. There are eternal rewards at play. There's the pleasure of our king to think about. There's joy that we experience in the life of the kingdom. These things are to be considered. So here at Christ Community Church, we want to help so that there might be an on-ramp that's you know, not complicated so that you can maximize your mina, okay? No one person can meet every need. We all have limits. It's so true. But you have a part to play. You have a gift to use. There are people to love. So we like to start the process 
by at least helping people try to get familiar with the gifts that they may have. And by the way, any tool that's used isn't a catch-all. No tool is perfect. In fact, I would encourage for those of you that meet in your life groups, not only talk about this tool, but you might go around, because I, I heard in one life group last week that did this, you might go around and just share with people what you see in that person, and it can be a great encouragement, you know, what, what gifts you see. Let's believe God to do wonderful things in our lives and in those around us if we'll just say, Lord, I'm yours, use my gifts. And if you don't know what your gift is, we've got some ways to help. But here's one thing I want you to hold on to. Let's not be deceived by the notion that pastors minister locally, missionaries minister abroad, and the rest just go to church. I just described the majority of the American church. That's not right. That's not the way it should be. We are all ministers. We need to think of ourselves that way. My name is Kevin Short. I started following Jesus when I was in the ninth grade. From that point, I became a minister. I want you to introduce yourself to the person next to you and then tell them, I am a minister. Do it now. Now, what do you say we get to work and see what God can do? I want to bring up one of our staff members, Kim Gray. She's going to talk to us about one of the ways that we can just kind of take a first step in learning what our gifts might be. So, Kim, help us out here. Okay. Each of you should have received this quarter sheet called Serve Wire this morning as you walked in. And if you didn't, um, grab some out in the foyer on your way out. Um, we use a tool here called CCB, which is Church Management System. And just about everything we do goes through CCB. It's our calendar. It's our event registrations. Um, if you checked in a child this morning, you use CCB. Um, and this is a CCB plugin. So what you do is you go on here. There's the URL there, and you have to use your um, CCB login and password. And it will take you through three different steps. The first one will be your passions, all those things that you're interested in, your hobbies, um, and particularly the type of people you like to work with. If you're really passionate about young moms, um, youth, college students, um, the football. football may or may not be on there. <laughs> the next one is your abilities. Um, and that's not just the things you get paid for. It's any ability that you have, um, any, any skill that you find that you excel at. And then the next one is a spiritual gifts quiz. So at the end, it will tell you what your top spiritual gifts are. And when you do that and you submit that, that's going to go into your CCB profile under the category called My Fit. And that is going to help us match you with the best places there are for you to fit here. Because we want you serving within your gifts and within your interests and abilities. And there are many times that we have specific needs and we wonder, I wonder who in our body knows this skill or has this ability. And this is going to be a great tool for us to help identify those people in our body. So if you could just do that, it takes five minutes. You can do this on your drive home, as long as you're not the one driving. Um, five minutes of your time today will be awesome, or any time this week. <clears throat> and then the other thing you got was this Ministries of CCC. 
And this is everything that's happening here at CCC, uh, opportunities for you to get involved here in this body. Um, so you can read through here, see if anything appeals to you, and there's four different ways that you can let this ministry leader know that you're interested. There, under each one, there's a contact name and number that you can just call or text them directly. You can go to our website, cccspringfield.org, and there's a button there that calls Serving Opportunities. That's going to take you to a CCB form um, in which all these ministries are listed. You can just click every one that you're interested in. There's no obligation if you go and click on it. Just means you're interested and you want to talk to the leader. Um, and that leader will be in contact with you when you do that. You can bypass our website and go straight to CCB forms and click on the forms called Serving Opportunities. Or there's always this Connect card in the seat back in front of you on the clipboard. It's always there. So anytime you feel like you want to get connected in any way, whether it's a life group or a ministry opportunity, you're always free to fill this out, stick it in the offering or in the black boxes at the back of the building. 